Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone on the West Coast, and good evening to those back East. And for those in the middle of the country, you know where you are, whether there's uh, sun or dark or whatever the situation is. And here we are on October 8, 2020, less than a month out from an historic election. And we have Bill Padalo here to discuss uh, some very uh, dramatic findings that he has unearthed uh, recently, I believe, and he will be discussing that. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Pleasure to be here as always. Uh, excellent. So uh, the backdrop to this, I mean, we we do talk a lot, and I, I mean even collectively around the country, those on the borrower's side, as I like to to, to frame it, we talk a lot about getting details of the true criminality. And again, I will give a slight disclaimer that when I use that term, I'm not using it in a legal way. It would be for others to decide. It would be in a forum, certainly not this radio show, to address those types of issues. However, is there criminal behavior that one might say generally and uh, not legally is extant in the mortgage world and the securitized world of the mortgages uh, that so many servicers took on over a period of years. And one of the biggest uh, elephants in the room, as Bill well knows, because he's put so much time and intel into unraveling the fraud, one of the biggest elephants in the room is the WAMU Chase receivership. And just briefly, I believe borrowers and other listeners understand this. Uh, For those who are not quite clear, a bankruptcy receivership is typically post-bankruptcy where some, some governmental entity or some it could even be a regulatory entity, forces an entity under regulation, under their authority. Uh, Here you're talking about uh, the FDIC and various financial regulators who were responsible for essentially forcing WAMU into bankruptcy back in 2008 Uh, because of the mortgage meltdown, because the mortgage meltdown made the balance sheets of of WAMU at the time essentially um, 
I don't know if it liquid paper would be a, a good metaphor. It's one that comes to mind. Certainly those balance sheets became a disaster and they were entirely unsustainable. And not literally overnight, but over a period of days and then weeks in the summer of 2008, uh, the WAMU uh, financial collective simply became uh, impossible to maintain. They were forced into a bankruptcy receivership, still one of the biggest bankruptcies on record in the United States. Chase ended up essentially being, I guess you could say, the beneficiary, legal and otherwise, of the receivership. The receivership, like in all bankruptcies, essentially it sort of sanitizes the assets and the debts. It takes the assets and the debts. It receives them into the bankruptcy. And then there is within the bankruptcy itself, through 11 process in this case, there is a uh, a kind of alchemy where a lot of loans are written down. Sometimes they're entirely written off. Here, that was not the case uh, because we were dealing with securitized mortgages with hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars property value at issue. So the process, of course, was messy and, of course, involved a lot of finessing and finagling. Uh, we have always suspected that there was outright fraud going on. And now Bill's going to be discussing exactly one of the elements to that fraud and just how dramatic the the activity here we're describing. I mean, I think regular people in the street know if they engaged in this activity, they would be in jail. So, Bill, go ahead and take it away. Well, I'll I'll be glad to. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics, obviously, and it's hard to believe that I've spent uh, over a decade uh, investigating the Wamu Chase FDIC fiasco. And um, there are elements within this fact pattern uh, as as I continue to investigate that um, tend to become sort of a cold case file in in certain aspects where. Uh, it's just been really, really hard to find definitive evidence of what we've suspected all along, that being that the original notes were being shredded and destroyed, uh, the WAMU notes anyway, and, um, and that these are image copies and fabricated uh, endorsements being applied to image copies in judicial proceedings all over the United States claiming that these are the original documents by the, by the witnesses. And so it's been very frustrating because um, there's all the circumstantial evidence. There's a lot of scuttlebutt and a lot of things that exist out there to piece together a pretty plausible theory as to all of this, um, including, you know, the banker comment letters that this was standard business practice, and it goes on and on and on. Um, and so what's just happened now recently in this, this fact pattern, we discussed the whole issue with the FDIC not having any of these loans uh, in their records and the fact that Chase can't uh, tie uh, any specific evidence to the purchase of any individual WAMU loan. You know, we've, we've, we've covered that on these previous shows. I've covered about covered this topic in my um, uh, articles I've posted over the years on my website. 
and uh, uh, and one so one of the things that um, I've been reviewing and seeing since day one in these cases is that there's a uniform pattern where Chase simply has no explanation and cannot provide any uh, verifiable evidence, I guess you could say, um, in their testimony as to how they allegedly came into possession of these WAMU notes. Uh, the story is pretty consistent that Chase's witness will do affidavit verifications or they'll testify in depositions and whatnot, and they'll say that the uh, they came into possession of the original WAMU notes, usually around July of 2009, nearly uh, a year after WAMU failed and went into receivership. And in that story, when, when the witnesses are challenged or asked, um, either on the stand, deposition, whatnot, as to, okay, where did they come from? Where were these original notes? Where did WAMU store them? Who delivered them in July of 2009? Who scanned these documents into the system in 2009? Uh, when were these notes endorsed uh, with the uh, typical blank endorsements? Uh, when? So on and so forth. And they will, uh, regarding the, the possession of the original notes, there's not a response to that. They basically, it's, it's a glaring gap and a glaring deficiency uh, to which no witness has answered or has been willing to answer, and even in their testimony when asked, who would know this, uh, they say they don't know. So they, they really play coy and clearly have a problem with that custodial history gap. So that being said, what I've come upon here is uh, a contract between Washington Mutual, Inc., and a company called ACS Commercial Solutions, Inc., uh, acronym is ACS. And these parties, WAMU, Inc., and ACS, entered into a contract, an original contract, back in February of 2004. And throughout the years, they um, would give process changes um, or they would you know, do addendums or amendments to the contract as things would shift or change or technologies would come about, all kinds of various reasons. So there's all kinds of iterations of the dating back to the original contract. Um, and so I've got a pile of these contracts, and just to give a little bit of a, a history of, of um, ACS, is that in, I think it was 2009, they were acquired by and merged with Xerox Corporation. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a, uh, a giveaway on the name right there. But anyhow, so ACS was acquired by Xerox, and uh, these contracts uh, talk about their facilities down in uh, Texas and Juarez, Mexico. And <clears throat> one of the things that stands out in the contracts that clearly talks about what ACS's procedures are going to be, they're going to take these loan files that are going to be delivered uh, after the closings by Washington Mutual Bank. They're going to be delivered, and, and uh, ACS is going to scan these documents in to the system um, and put all kinds of codes and so on and so forth, and then they're going to, you know, store these documents for a, a certain time period, and then ultimately, uh, in 2008, uh, early 2008, and before Washington Mutual goes into receivership, they come off with a um, 
document uh, destruction services change request that goes into very specific detail about um, the, the destruction of all the WAMU files and all the, uh, the collateral files and whatnot. And, they, and it's very detailed. They t in fact, they're going through the, uh, estimating when, they're, when they were estimating the job and billing for this, these services that they would uh, have the capabilities of destroying and shredding up to 38,000 pounds, so 19 tons of loan files per day, uh, which equated to over 15,000 loan collateral files to which they were instructed to completely destroy and shred, and, and even to make sure that these documents uh, could never be reproduced. Uh, there are all kinds of built-in, um, very specific requests about how they were going to destroy and shred, and, and even taking those shredded documents, how they were going to destroy, so on and so forth. So it's, it's a very, very clear in these contracts, and these contracts were obtained by a subpoena to Xerox, uh, and, and this was <laughs> several years ago, actually, and and, and again, there's a lot of scuttle, but if you look around the Internet or you start Googling this stuff, ACS and everything else, you're going to kind of hit a dead end. Uh, you're going to see where um, these documents were referenced in uh, a California case with Dr. James Kelly, who was a document examiner who many might be familiar with, who was able to issue this subpoena. Um, and, and, and according to Dr. Kelly and the filings that he did put into the, into the uh, federal court record, was that Xerox on a gentleman's agreement asked that these documents please be kept confidential and to see um, if, if he could file these under seal and confidentially, uh, confidentiality with the court. So a motion was filed in the case and the court did not um, grant any protective order or any concealment order or anything of that nature protecting these documents. However, the documents uh, for years have been missing in the the actual court filings in the docket, okay? So so you're not going to be able to put your fingers on these um, uh, documents, and I hadn't been able to either until now just recently. So, again, in reviewing these documents, it gives you a pretty good idea that, that of what was going on in the destruction. And, and so then the next thing is, is, okay, how do we tie this to a specific uh, WAMU note, for example? Now, Many folks out there, if you're listening, uh, if you're doing research and you come upon this blog post and you're listening to this show and you happen to have had a WAMU mortgage or a deed of trust or note, um, a lot of them have clues on them. Some do, some don't. Uh, but if you look typically in the upper left-hand corner of your deeds or mortgages, a lot of times they're going to say after uh, recording of the mortgage to send or deliver that uh, original document to ACS, and they will they will talk about ACS um, in in those. But in all of the um, picking away at the, at the discovery requests and demands, eventually uh, these clues pop up that tie this all together. And such a clue is provided in a in a case in New York where uh, J P Morgan Chase 
for six years in litigation had taken the position that the loan had never been sold and securitized, and they got it through the FDIC and all the typical uh, story of um, uh, that, that they're holding the original note, endorsed in blank, so on and so forth. And in that case, uh, in the case that I'm, I'm, I'm have been brought into now recently, it's been uncovered that, okay, Chase has been committing fraud for years, not only with their story that it was never sold and securitized, because now we, uh, Chase themselves tripped up and admitted that it was in a Lehman Trust of all places, uh, which I located in the Lehman bankruptcy. But when pressed in the case to explain the note endorsement of Cynthia Riley, when that note endorsement was placed on there, Instead of providing what we know they have in their system called a dock line report in their MSB system, and that dock line report I've got in a number of cases, I'm going to talk about that again in a minute, where some of these, these documents now I can show and, uh, exactly what they're doing to, to alter these documents. They're altering the servicer system screenshots. J.P. Morgan Chase is altering these business records, and I'm going to tell you, it, to me, it's clear-cut fraud. Uh, it, it's it's they're altering uh, these documents and omitting things and, and manipulating them to fit their narrative and fit the story in whatever case and jurisdiction that they're in. So this is clear cut fabrication. Okay, and uh, but anyway, going back to this uh, the question in the New York case about the endorsement is instead of producing the dockline report, there was uh, an urgent need to. Uh, they were trying to meet a deadline, and so they slapped together an affidavit, and, uh, and, and it's a witness that Chase uses in a lot of cases, and he's got a lot of different um, stories depending on where, whatever case he's involved. But um, he provides what he says is proof that the note was endorsed prior to J.P. Morgan Chase acquiring it, and he calls it a metadata page. And it's a cover sheet to the note, the promissory note, and it's the first time that I'd ever seen such a thing. And, it, and in my view, it's it, the the uh, they just kind of trumped up this document to some degree. There might be some validity to it, but anyway, it's called a metadata page that shows um, and has ACS's fingerprints all over it. And they're trying to uh, take the position that this particular note was scanned into the system, uh, and they don't talk about ACS in particular, but they say it was scanned in on the day of receivership, which is September 25th of 08. Now, that's kind of far-fetched to believe that uh, suddenly on the day of receivership, these notes were suddenly all being uh, hurriedly and scanned into, into anybody's system. So that's kind of hard to believe in in itself. But the document clearly shows that this thing was in the custody and control, the note of ACS, and that uh, they produced uh, these uh, scanned images. It ties right in with the contracts of, of how the, where these notes and collateral files flowed. So with this contract and with the, the, the admissions in this contract, um, it, it's, it's crystal clear, and it can certainly be now shown, that the Chase can't explain the, of, of how they got the originals because they don't exist. Uh, and the contract clearly says that they were to destroy all of the original WAMU notes. So it's, it's a groundbreaking uh, piece of evidence now tied into other evidence 
uh, of Chase's position in these cases that really makes this puzzle fit together nicely. Now, <clears throat> there's there's quite a bit more nefarious stuff here as, as it's all coming together. Um, one of the things that, you know, if you, if, you, if you followed this to any extent, there was a lot of rumors and scuttlebutt that prior to WAMU's failure, uh, in order for Chase to get that sweetheart deal from the FDIC, that that they had a lot of inside knowledge and information ahead of time. Even the investors were crying foul that J.P. Morgan Chase had sort of infiltrated WAMU and had personal knowledge of what was going on, and that they were you know on this course for failure, um, you know, months and months prior to the receivership. And what also is clear is that. Uh, not only did Chase have this inside knowledge, uh, and, and did they have the ability to, to, to kind of coerce the sweetheart deal to take over uh, WAMU, but they also had inside knowledge in the, uh, the Lehman, Bank, uh, Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Uh, and when I say that is that I was delving into a very detailed complaint filed by the investors of Lehman, and Lehman said, that J.P. Morgan Chase, just prior to Lehman's bankruptcy, now Lehman filed bankruptcy uh, a week before Washington Mutual in, in uh, September of 08. So in the first week of September, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, who had access to all of the Lehman accounts, they, were, they, they controlled many of the securitization um, accounts where the money was flowing through on this stuff. And they they controlled the accounts to a lot of the credit default swaps, and they had they they basically had all the goods and the inside information. It's sort of like you know Charles, if you were an attorney for a very big client, you know under attorney client privilege you have access to all this information. And uh, and so what happens here in a, in a nutshell, and then I'll turn it over to you, Charles, is that Chase went in and shook down. Uh, Lehman Brothers for eight and a half billion dollars, forcing it into bankruptcy, and they kept that money, which was the credit default swap contracts, on many of these securitized loans. And so, in a nutshell, uh, if you really delve into it, what you can see, and, and they're saying that this was a this was all-out theft and extortion, but they pocketed that money and then proceeded to go after and foreclose on the homes, having collected on all the insurance. It's really, really dark, disgusting stuff. But anyway, um, it's coming together. I think we've got uh, a lot here that we'll have to talk about on another show in terms of some strategies now, especially to go after the FDIC and either declaratory actions um, or, or an overall injunction to put a stop to this, because it's, it's crystal clear that this is, a, this is a crime spree that's got to stop. Charles? And I think one one possible play for this is, I mean, let's say you have plaintiffs' uh, litigation from a borrower in a non-judicial foreclosure state. Uh, let's say that uh, you've got this litigation uh, in California or you've got it in uh, Nevada. And with that, if if there is, uh, I mean, almost by definition, any WAMU generated loan, hypothetically, are you able to get down into individual loan files to show that 
it was shredded, or is that level of detail not available at this point? Well, I, the, uh, certainly you can make those requests, but they're not going to turn over the smoking gun. Uh, the, there is evidence in the Dockline reports as to who did the scanning of their so-called possession of the original document, and you can try to go after a couple of these individuals, but Chase does a very good job of hiding and concealing them. The bottom line is is that they've, gone and they've taken the position, uh, and they're, they're schmoozing everybody in the courts to just make the presumption that we're holding the original note. And this clearly with all the evidence combined shows that that's simply not the case. There's more evidence, it's more likely than not, that they're destroyed because, look, they're talking about destroying up to 15,000 loan files a day, 38,000 pounds of them, and to make sure that they can never be reproduced. The servicing guides that uh, Wimzik, who is Washington Mutual Mortgage Securities Corp., who is the master servicer on most of this stuff, they even state right in their servicing platform that uh, the originals would be destroyed and they would be allowed, that you had to have technology to reproduce produce the original, unquote, quote, unquote. Um, it's, 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 it's a lot. I got a mountain of, of, of documentation, and now it's just putting it all together to show clear and convincingly that uh, this, this is their MO. This is what they're doing. They're, they're uh, lying about the original documents. They're forging and fabricating. All I wanted to talk about real quick is the, the fabrication of the endorsements and the loan tr transfer history screenshots. I've got enough of these documents now to show exactly what they're doing. These endorsements are put on these notes in a 90-day default uh, procedure sequence that is well outlined in a lot of the countrywide cases with uh, uh, Linda Torelli that uh, really talks about it. Uh, Bruce Jacobs out of Florida talks about it, very specific. This is tied to the MSP servicing platform, which they all use. So the attorneys and everybody, they have this 90-day process, and this is when these uh, fabricated endorsements are being placed upon the notes. If you look at the uh, Dockline reports that are being produced and the screenshots, they're, you can clearly see how they're changing, altering, omitting, and, and, and removing information, uh, and they've done a sloppy job of it because I can see some of, some of the poor redactions, and I've been able to show uh, the, what they're doing, why they're editing, removing, and altering these documents to fit their storyline. But the Dockline reports are the giveaway. They clearly show and admit that, uh, that they are placing these forged endorsements on these image copies at certain dates and time in the 90-day default sequence process. Flies right in the face with the story that they're perjuring and attesting to in court that that it was uh, endorsed before the receivership and that and that the document's original, flat out false. Yes, and we uh, we will take this up again on a on a fairly uh, on a fairly to come uh, show, meaning one that we we will have scheduled. Sometime in the next couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks, we'll see about revisiting this topic because uh, there's so much to to unpack here, and it's such a compelling uh, situation. It it brings to mind the uh, the legal theory of evidence of absence, and while it's a difficult difficult legal theory to play out, I could see the possibilities here because. One of the things that we often have problems exposing in these plaintiffs' cases is the the actual details of the connection. Here, uh, the level of detail that you're getting to, I think, will expose that 
documentation that is absent, there's an actual legal explanation for. Uh, we were going to get, uh, and thank you for all of that, Bill. We were going to get to a COVID update today. Uh, limited time for that, I will say just briefly, and I'll touch more on this next time. Alameda County has turned out to have a very robust eviction moratorium. In theory, it applies to both foreclosure uh, sales and unlawful detainer cases. On the UD front, it's absolutely robust. Uh, there's some narrow exceptions where the UD plaintiffs can still move forward, but overall it's leading to months-long uh, delays in eviction proceedings, including post-foreclosure. On that note, uh, we will be back. You will be back next week. And regards to everyone in the meantime. Thank you, Bill. Thanks again, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.